0: Good morning, everybody, good to see you. As always, pleasure is mine. Just wanted to take a moment to just appreciate a group of people. It's not a surprise to them I did this first service, but like, there's a group of people in here that their goal is to go unnoticed, but they do a fantastic job. They're our tech team, and they sacrifice a ton of time to do what you see here every Sunday. So could we just give them some appreciation? Let them know that we thank them. Even now, they're trying to be unnoticed in appreciation. They're sneaky, those guys back there. Hey, we're going to be in chapter six today uh, in Romans. We're going to continue in our series and try to think rightly about God. And I'll just let you know, chapter six. We're going to read the entire uh, chapter, not in one large sweeping um, speech or or read, but breaking it up. But it is an authoritative chapter and. Uh, I'm not going to try to lord it over you, but we, we take Scripture and do with it, with it what it wants us to do. So uh, just know that. I've been prayerful this week for you guys um, in your, the area of faith that we talked about last Sunday, that maybe you've considered uh, some things in your heart, that God has some, stirred some things, and we're going to build off that lens of faith uh, today And as we said last week, faith is about surrendering or relying or trusting in something outside of ourselves. And as Christians, our faith is in Jesus Christ being who He said He was and doing the things that He said He would do. It is faith that His life and his death and his resurrection has done for us something that we could not do, that it fundamentally changed the relationship between God and man. And the one word that sums up the fundamental change is the word grace. That for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, who trust in him, the chasm between God and man created by our own disobedience was changed through one man's obedience. And we by grace have been given or imputed his righteousness those of us who trust in Christ. And so Paul breaks it down this way in Romans 5, talking about our death in Adam and our life now in Christ. In verse 18, it says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners— so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So Adam, who is our DNA, he is our lineage, and we, and we are a represent. he is a representative of the human race at this point. In his act of disobedience and sin, that act brought in sin and condemnation and death into a world that previously did not know it. And so God acted to show his glory, his awesomeness, and his might by eventually giving us the law. And the law in the Old Testament was there to make a way for us. And it was also there to show us humans how bad and blemished we really were. But more importantly, I think, is to show how unimaginably holy and glorious God is. The law is perfect, and it is the standard in which humans have to live by to be in a right relationship with God. But God knew in all of his wisdom that a broken man could not obtain perfect obedience to a perfect law. So he knew that we needed another way. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 5.20, in just the first part of 20, he says, Now the law came to increase the trespass. The law came to reveal that we are worse than we thought. That law came to show us how bad we really are. And God, because he knew it was going to take us, because we're humans, something outside of ourselves to fix us. He knew because we're humans that we need to see it, that we need to feel it, that we need to know it for ourselves, and he does that by the law. And that something that was going to fix us is Christ, whose perfect life, whose perfect obedience was given to us through an unmerited, undeserved act that we call grace. As we continue to read in 20, that becomes clear. Chapter five. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also must reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, all our sin and all of our disobedience has been forgiven by grace. That all of our shortcomings have been overlooked, not just overlooked, but forgiven by a loving God who now calls us his sons and daughters. And that is so scandalous, so outrageous, that our human brains have trouble comprehending what it means in our life. We have trouble understanding the role that grace plays in this area of sin. And so that is what we want to talk about today. Paul addresses this letter to the Romans, to both the Jews and the the Gentiles in the church, but I think just based upon his language and his questioning and his dialogue, he's speaking at least in this section primarily to the Jewish Christians in the Roman church. Here at the end of Romans 5 and into 6, 7, and 8, Paul is in this dialogue against this idea held by some of the Jews that this gospel must be forsaken, For if righteousness was to be determined by grace through faith, then it would just lead people into believing that they continue in sin because they are no longer upholding the standard, upholding the law. And so to put this in kind of a worldly example, it would be like this. Um, Say that you work at a a factory and you've worked there for a, a very long time. You work there for 40 hours a week, and you know your first obligation when you get there is to walk into that office, to sign your name on the timesheet, to put what time you came in, and where you're going to be working for the day. And then you take that timesheet, you swipe it through the punch clock, it puts its own timesheet on it, and you put it in the slot. And when you leave, you do the exact same thing. So one day, the management says, you know, for efficiency's sake, this isn't working. We're going to improve this system. So all you need to do is come to the office, write your name, check the box in that you made it here, and then when you leave, check the box out. Now, for those of us who have been used to the system, who've grown to like this system, we might say, hey, this isn't fair, man. Do you understand what you're going to do here? People are just going to come in here, and they're going to sign their name, they're going to check the box in and check the box out, and they're going to leave. That's not right. How are we going to ever know if they earned what they did here? And this is the ideas that the Jews have, that this is way too easy. That grace is way too easy. It doesn't have enough teeth. And being familiar with this line of thought, because Paul is a Roman or a Jewish convert, he probably would have thought about this grace thing being way too easy. And he knows the mind of a Jew going through Christianity and understanding it. He's going to ask and pose some questions that he himself is going to answer to help us understand and grasp better this understanding of grace versus grace. The law. So let's turn to Romans 6. We're going to read most of this together. Um, the question that Paul asked here in the beginning, I think, is the most important question in all of this text. It's in verse 1. It says this, what shall we say then? And this is referring back to this idea of a mistaken gospel that leads people into sin because they're not upholding the standard. It's by grace. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So are we just to continue to sin so we can receive more forgiveness, more grace, and where the Jews have problem understanding this in a grace versus the law issue? I don't think that is our struggle when we face trying to answer this question. Our context in this church, because the last time I checked, not many of you have talked to me about your Jewish ancestry, okay? I'm going to assume that most of us are not Jews in here, so we're Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jews. So our context, context isn't that grace is undercutting the law and making people believe they can do with whatever they want. Our context is this. How much stuff can I do before grace runs out? What is God willing to forgive and how much of it can I do? Like it's this mentality of a buffet. Like if you have an event and you put the words free and buffet together, like dude, you're drawing a crowd. No question. And the thought will be as much as I can get as much as I can get. It's like standing in line for steak and somebody hands you one and they ask you this question. You want some more? And you debate in your head the answer between yes and seven. Because we want to know where the line is. We want to know how much that we can have. So our issue today is more in the realm of grace versus obedience. That when we put the words free and grace together, Where do we draw the line? But in either case, Jew or Gentile, the answer is the same. Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? And Paul's answer, a a very familiar answer from Paul, is by no means. With an exclamation mark. He's really saying it. By no means! And he says this in verse 2 and following. How can we... Who died to sin still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Okay, so we got that? Moving on. I'm just kidding. There's a lot of things there that we need to unpack that we need to talk about, grasping in that. So what is this passage saying? What this passage is saying is that faith in Christ and his grace that he gave us, when we have that, we have been unified with him in his death and his, res- his resurrection. And because of our union with him based upon our faith, we get all the benefits of Christ's perfect life, his death and his resurrection, in which he defeated sin and death and secured for us a newness and life in him and eternity with God. We get it all. By his own doing, we get it all. So we have died to Christ and we are raised in the newness of life because for those who trust in God, he resides with us. And Paul is reminding us that it's baptism that reminds us of this. That when we go under the water, we understand we are dead to sin. And when we come up, that we are alive to God. Dead to sin, alive with God. So Paul's summation of why we should not continue to sin is so, so grace can increase is... Dead people don't sin. Dead people don't sin. You're like, duh. Like, they don't do anything, Steve. They don't, of course they don't sin. Well, we in the realm of sin are dead too. Because you and I are in union with Christ. We no longer suffer condemnation for sin. It doesn't control you. Or maybe I should say it should not control you. You are not to be enslaved to it. Your falling short of the law is not what keeps you from being holy and righteous. Your faith in Christ and his grace is what will determine whether you're righteous or not. And you may say, well, that's great, Steve. So what you're saying is if I believe in Christ, I have died to sin and it no longer has dominion over me, right? And I would say, yes. And then you would say, like, then what do I do with the fact that there's a lot of me that wants to do with what I want and it leads me into sin? If I have died to it, why does it still have play in my life? Why can't I stop? And to bring some wisdom to this, I want us to notice a few things in this passage. Most importantly, what Paul is saying and what Paul is not saying. Now, Paul and the other authors, the New Testament and the Old Testament, have the mind and the hand of God when they're writing this. Okay? It's important for us to understand that. What Paul does not say that it is upon your death and resurrection, upon based upon your union with Christ through faith, that you instantly stop the desire to sin. The Holy Spirit does not come in your life and instantly. You just don't feel like you have to sin anymore. You don't have this special ability just to walk free from being tempted. If that was the case, Paul would have made that very clear here. And there would be, honestly, a lot less drama in our church, a lot less drama in our lives, and a lot less drama in our homes, if that were to be true. What Paul is trying to make us understand here is that we have to believe and we have to know that we are dead to it and Christ did it for us. And then he raised us up into the newness of life. Listen to what he says in 10 and 11 in this last verse that we just read. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives for God. So you must also, what's the word here? Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That word, consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, is not an automatic thing. To consider means that we, it doesn't happen instantaneously, that we are to set our minds on that, that we are to grow in belief of that and to grow in knowledge of it. To understand that verse really says this, the death that you died in Christ, you died to sin once and for all. And the life that you live, you live for God. And we have to remember that. And so now we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ, so we have died to sin in his condemnation, and we are to stop the practice of sinning in our life, that we are to stop the practice of sinning in our life. And listen to Paul address this, Romans 6:12 through23: "Let not sin, therefore reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passion. How many times in our life has sin made us a promise that it never fulfilled? Sin will never deliver on its promise. It's true in my life. The only thing that obeying the passions of sin has ever done for me is bring me into more deception and more decay. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you have committed. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things on which you are now ashamed? Sin never delivers on its promises. For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, why do we stop the practice of sinning in our life? Because we don't serve it anymore. It is not our master. And Paul is imploring us to consider who do you serve? Who do you serve? Who is your Lord? And don't get caught up in these terms of masters and slaves, because we all serve something. And these words can make us flinch because they have such a negative connotation in our history. But make no mistake, we all serve something. Whether it's Christ, or it's money or success, pride or ego, popularity or promotion, we all serve something. Pastor Tim Keller out of New York describes this attitude of sin like this. He says, sin is like this. If I have that... My life will have meaning, I will have value, I feel significant, and I'll have security. That is the object of my worship. So what is that in your life? What is the that that you serve, that you think brings you meaning, value, significance, and security? Is it Christ? Bob Dylan, great artist, once wrote a song that says gotta serve somebody. His chorus says, but you're gonna have to serve somebody, yes. Indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And for those of us who are in Christ, it says that we are to die to the master of sin and become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching in which you have committed that God has laid out for you. He is who we serve. And we aren't to present ourselves as obedient slaves to sin anymore we can't serve two masters and we understand this context in the lens of of our like our marriage if we have been married like we have committed to our spouse that we no longer are going out there and throwing ourselves out to other people and saying like hey how you doing we've committed to that lifestyle most of us in this room just speaking to men okay should be thankful that one woman said yes to us and just stay committed to that right I know that I am so we become obedient to the standards and commands that God has given us. And that standard, and we said this last week, it isn't oppressive, and it isn't mean. God is not a cosmic killjoy. God has laid out the best life possible for us on our existence, on earth, and into the next, that he has laid out a life that brings the most joy, the most substance, and he desires us to get there by saying, hey, don't do that. That's not good for you, man. And do this, it will go well for you. And his desire is to move his creation into a life in which they flourish. And that life is only possible through him. And that is why we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ and grow in that knowledge. And look, it doesn't mean that you don't, won't sin. It means that you are not a practicer of sin. That, yes, you may fall, but you do not serve it anymore. It is not your master's. And we get up, and we repent, and we walk into his loving and graceful arms with humility in our hearts. And that process is called sanctification. It's a big word, and we've said it a lot, that when we become slaves to God, righteousness, it leads to sanctification which is end, is eternal life. So we understand that sanctification is a process that's end is eternal life, that our hearts should look more and more and more like Jesus as we obey his word and his way. I like to think of it this way. In 10 years from now, I should not be stumbling with the same things I'm stumbling with now. 10 years from now, I should be a better follower of Christ. I should look more like him. And you're to hold me accountable to that. That is sanctification, that we move closer to God's glory. So in this text, Paul is saying, by no means should we have who have received the free gift of grace, we should not continue in sin and say, hey, well, God's going to forgive it anyways. Not at all. Because you don't serve sin any longer. We don't serve sin you have died to that, and you are alive in Christ who is your master and who offers you more richness in life than sin could ever promise. And you may sound, you may say, well, that sounds a lot like obedience to a law, that if our hearts are to be obedient to a standard and commit to it, what is grace for? That's a fair question. I like to think of it in this way when I think of death to sin, obedience, and factoring in grace. So if we surrender our lives to Christ and believe in God, That he desires us to walk in the best possible life that we can. It's this idea of this is the best possible way. I'm not going to get too high. My shirt's kind of short today. Okay, I'm going to keep it down here. That this is our best possible way. And this is us. And his desire is to get us here. Okay? And any time that we fall short of this life, it's sin. And so God gives us the law to make us understand the standard of living here. And so we try to do that, but what happens? We can't do it. It's broken people obtaining a perfect law. It just doesn't happen. So God, with all of his knowledge, knows that he needs to make it another way. And so he sends us Christ, on which he pours out all the wrath that he has against mankind in their sin because sin has to be punished, kills him, raises him from the dead, and then gives us his righteousness as our own through an undeserved, unmerited act called grace. And we have been given all the grace. All the grace that we will ever need in our entire life to move from this lifestyle of death into his glory. All the grace that we'll ever need to take two steps forward, three steps forward, one step back. Father, I'm sorry. Keep moving towards him, but we keep moving towards him understanding that he has given us all the grace that we'll ever need to move from this broken life that we know we are to a life where we look like Jesus in our deeds and our action more all the grace that we ever need. We sometimes think that God is somehow rationing grace. Like he says, all right, Billy Joe, I'll give you some grace. You make, you make that stretch for the day, okay? I don't want you to have to come back here. Or we say, oh, I hope God's gonna give me enough grace today. Do you know that he has given you all the grace that you ever will need to move from death into life with him? Once and for all, all the grace that you'll ever need. And the reason that some of us can believe in God and his grace and continue in sin is because you don't care enough to consider that yes, that gift was you for, it was you, given to you for free. The gift of grace was given to you. All the grace that you would ever need. But you don't understand that it was costly. Yes, it was free, but man, it was costly. For those of us who struggle with this idea of grace and sin and how much is too much, it's because at the end of the day, we don't care what he did for us. We are more concerned with what we want. And it is that type of attitude that produces the thought and the belief that, well, God's just gonna forgive it anyways. And it's that type of attitude that leads people to believe that God's gift, it's free, he forgives, so I'll just take as much as I want. A poet named W.H. Auden speaks about this lifestyle in a poem, a line that says, I like committing crimes, God likes forgiving them, Really, the world is admirably arranged. And if that is our attitude, if we are constantly wondering how far we can push the line, how much is God, God's going to forgive this, right? If we are thinking that in our attitude, we have not considered the cost of grace, and we are not committing to the standard in our hearts. And if that is our issue, it is a heart issue. And that issue is that you're serving the wrong master. Because a heart that understands the gift of grace in its completeness and its volume understands it was costly. And it produces a heart that walks in gratitude to the one who gave it to them because they understand that they could not earn it themselves. The other day, one of my buddies asked me to go up and play golf at this really nice golf course in Chicago. And the kicker here was that his wife paid for it all. It was his birthday and she gave him this gift. It was included a round of golf, um, dinner, range balls, uh, snacks, a $50 gift card to the pro shop. It was amazing, a round for two people. And he invited me to come. And I was, I'm just gonna jacked about this, okay? Pumped about going to this thing. So we made it a couple day thing. We took our wives and we woke up the morning of our golf date, I'm gonna call it a date because it was a date, it was a good day, okay? We left early because we're going to take advantage of all the perks that we got, right? Chicago traffic had other things in mind. And so we sat in traffic for a while, and we eventually get there in time just to hit like four or five range balls and get to our tee box um, just to not be rushed over there. And so it was a beautiful day. Loved it. Beautiful course. And I just had a great day. And do you know why I had such an awesome day? Because I didn't pay a dime for it. I didn't pay. and that's not because I'm cheap, okay? I like the word frugal better in that context, okay? <laughs> Listen, there is something about the fact that he picked me and paid for everything that changed my attitude and heart for that day. Was I okay with sitting in traffic in Chicago? Yes. I just felt this freedom to just to take the entire day in. And I often just sat in the car, probably really annoyingly, and just said, man, this is a beautiful course, right? It's just a beautiful day. Good shot. Went four yards. It's a good shot, man. And I just found myself taking care of the course a little bit better, replacing my divots. There's a lot of divots. I'm not a great golfer. Got some foxholes. I'm filling in dirt, you know. And just like taking care of the greens, driving my cart in appropriate places. I just, I loved the day. I loved it. Do you know what changes that scenario? If I paid for it? If I paid for that day, it changes it. Because if I paid for it, if I paid for that round of golf, do you think I'd be okay sitting in Chicago traffic thinking I was going to be late for my tea time? Do you think I would have been okay paying for a bunch of range balls and only hitting four or five of them? Do you think if I paid for golf that I would not be sitting there evaluating, well, was this golf, cart or golf course really worth what I paid for it. I mean, it's nice, but I've seen better. I mean, the greens are kind of slow, and I mean, what's this doing here? But because I didn't, it produced something in me that was different. And it's because I wasn't burdened with the cost, I was consumed with gratitude. And that gratitude produced with me, within me an outcome that was different, thoughts that were different, a way that was different about me on that day. It's in a heart that understands grace is no longer beating, burdened with the cost, is overwhelmed with gratitude. And that is the, ha- the attitude that happens when we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ through his grace. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 15. says, for it is all for your sake. It is all for our sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. John Piper writes in one of his sermons about grace, he says this, Grace begins when one person is full and the other is empty. One person is a have and the other is a have-not. One is rich and the other is poor. Then grace comes into action as the emptiness of one is filled up by the fullness of the other. What we do not have is supplied by what he has. Our poverty is replaced by his wealth, and all that not because we deserve it, but because Jesus is gracious. His riches are free, therefore gratitude wells up in the hearts of those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. This gratitude to Christ, which marks all true believers, says that I am free and glad that I'm free from condemnation does not require service. It is a gladness towards Jesus and its riches of salvation in the way he made it ours. When the grace of Jesus penetrates the human heart, it rebounds back to God as gratitude. Christian gratitude is grace reflected back to God in the happiness we feel towards Jesus. And the gratitude that we have in grace produces a desire within us to follow and serve the one who gave it to us a desire to look more and more like him who gave it to us out of the delight of our hearts and the splendor of our souls. He is who we serve. We do not serve sin anymore. So should we stop sinning so grace can abound? Yes, we should. Paul says we should not continue it by no means for we have died with Christ and sin and death no longer have dominion over us, that we have been raised in the newness of life in Christ, that he has given us all the grace that we will ever need to move from this broken life of sin into the abundance abundance of life through him. And listen, that life isn't always easy, but it sure is sustaining. And we serve him and not our flesh because one that is lost and found does not serve the one that got them lost. But with gratitude and love in their heart, they dutifully serve the one who found them. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your abundance of grace that you have given all that we need to move out of the life of depravity and sin into your glorious light. And God, today I just pray that you would just reveal things in our hearts, that our ears would hear, our hearts would hear what you have for us. And God, that you would move us in understanding uh, of what you expect for us, how much grace that you've given us, that you convict us in our sin, that you would help us to walk out of that and embrace the grace that you gave us. Father, we thank you for all that you are and all that you give us. And we pray this in the name of Christ who did for us what we could not. Amen.